From the Bob Varley studio in Orlando, Florida, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel. Hello, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. Hey. Happy New Year, and yes, you heard correctly, for this episode of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I are together in the same room. Yes, we are. Yeah. Yeah. Can even see each other. I know, we can see each other. So you guys can't see us this time, at least. Maybe, uh, maybe the next time around. But no, it's actually it's very nice finally getting to do one of these where we're actually looking at each other and on the same uh, base. Because for those of you who couldn't figure it out uh, from as much as we talked about on the the other episodes, Michael's in California and I'm in Florida. Right. That's why the opening is from east to west and kingdom to kingdom. Exactly. That was our hint. Yep. <laughs> so, if you are new to the show, stop right now and go back into our archives and listen to episodes one through five. Um, Connecting with Walt is an event podcast in a Diz Unplugged network of podcasts. We come to you every three months on each Friday of that month. In 2016, we will broadcast in January, April, July, which is Disneyland's anniversary month, October, Walt Disney World's anniversary month, and December, Walt Disney's birthday month. So, in every episode, we explore an area of Disney history. It could be a theme park attraction, the making of a film, a Disney legend or luminary. Uh, Currently, we are exploring the rich history of Walt Disney World. Each episode examines a chapter in Walt Disney World's history chronologically, which is why if you are new to the show or have missed an episode, I strongly recommend you go back and catch up with us. So, just put us on pause right now, and we'll wait for you to catch up in return. (laughs) Welcome back. Now that you're all caught up, we'll continue. So, Craig, have you done anything interesting since our last show in October? Oh, not really. Uh, About the only thing that happened was I got married and, well, then Dizapalooza and then my honeymoon in Disneyland. So, I guess a a couple interesting things happened. So, especially, uh, I'm happy about the Disneyland one, uh, getting a chance to see the the final days of uh the rivers of america and tom sawyer island as we knew it and the little bit that was left uh to see of big thunder ranch since the whole jamboree area was all closed off at that point but no it's it had some uh, nice memories there from the past couple months good what was the highlight of your backstage magic oh i do not no, that, that's really putting me on the spot for that one. Um, I it, it was all a great trip, and it's always exciting going, seeing Imagineering and uh, Walt Disney Studios. I, I guess I, the highlight for the trip wasn't something that happened to me, but uh, it happened to Kylie whenever, uh, whenever we were at Walt Disney Studios. Uh, Conan O'Brien was there going to see a screening of The Force Awakens, and he saw how excited she was and turned around and gave her a hug. And uh-huh. that was kind of out of the blue. But, uh, you know, to to mix with that karma, then uh, she got violently ill right as we started to eat at Club 33. And we had to get up and uh, excuse ourselves 
throughout that in the middle of the meal and just leave before we could even get any food. Oh, poor thing. Yeah, it was kind of so a shame. So Conan has that effect on people. Exactly. No, it, it was that instant karma, though. You know, you get something good, then uh, your one chance at eating at Club 33 on our honeymoon was just completely ruined. Oh. But I, you, I forgave her at this point. Did you get a chance to see any of the club? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I got... Uh, a little bit of a chance to walk around. So I was in there before they did the uh, the entire uh, re-enhancement of the actual restaurant itself. Mm-hmm. But uh, luckily, the the um, the uh, member of Club Thirty Three who was nice enough to get us in was also there, so I could go in and see the lounge just briefly oh, as we were excusing ourselves on the way out, so she could go rest at the hotel. Yeah. But no, it was. It w- that was definitely two highlights. Yes. So both interesting. One good, one not so good. But, yeah. you know. The lounge is beautiful. Oh, my God. 33. So, so gorgeous. Yeah. So I can't wait to go back, hopefully, sometime and, uh, and get to see it a little more and yeah. really get to enjoy it a little bit more. When you don't see Conan O'Brien. Exactly. So you yeah. can enjoy it. So uh, <laughs> any highlights for you, Michael? trying to think since October uh, went to the animation research library I've talked I talked about it on the Disneyland show and, and that that was terrific because yeah. um, you know just seeing the actual artwork yeah. maquettes and all that they used in films is always is just impressive That's so cool yeah. yeah and always being on the studio is a lot of fun exactly for me. yeah yeah. I enjoy that. And especially because you know that's another place where Walt was. I mean, he built it, he designed it and yeah. built it. Yeah. So, and then we, we've had a wonderful Christmas, you know, a good New Year's. We, Carol and I thoroughly enjoyed Dispalooza. Yeah, I completely yeah. forgot about those holidays that also happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanksgiving. Yep. Yeah, we had a very nice oh Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh, yeah. A lot of stuff happened there. A lot of stuff happened. But now here we are together again. So the last time we were all together in episode five, The Torch Has Passed On, we explored the projects Walt Disney was working on in 1966. And despite his faltering health, this was the most active he had ever been creatively. His passing in December 15, 1966, left those he worked with almost paralyzed with grief. If it were not for his brother and lifetime partner, 73-year-old Roy O. Disney's leadership and his determination, the company may not have recovered. So today, in Episode 6, Walt and Roy, a lifetime partnership, we're going to talk about the brothers' close and sometimes turbulent devotion, who together built an empire. So in 1957, two years after Disneyland opened, the Los Angeles chapter of the Big Brothers of America asked Walt to speak at a benefit dinner honoring one of his boyhood friends, Walt Pfeiffer. As as they darkened the house lights so everyone could see him clearly, Walt spoke warmly. I was fortunate I had a big brother, and he's still with me. I still love him. I argue with him. Sometimes I think he's the stubbornest so-and-so I ever met in my life. But I don't know what the hell I'd do without him. He's the president of the company now. From out of the darkened audience came a voice, I'm chairman of the board, Walt. (laughs) Everyone laughed, and the loudest was Walt himself, for that was the voice of Roy Disney, Walt's older brother. (laughs) Walt continued, I'll tell you, we started in the business here in 1923, and if it hadn't been for my big brother, I swear I've been in jail several times for checks bouncing. I never knew what was in the bank. He kept me on the straight and narrow. 
Roy Oliver Disney was the third son born to Elias and Flora Disney on June 6, 1893. There were two older brothers, Herbert Disney, born December 8, 1888, and Raymond, born on December 30, 1890. Even though Roy's oldest brother was just five years his senior, he was never as close to his older brothers as when a Walter Elias Disney was born on December 5, 1901. Despite being eight years older, he was devoted to his little brother. He never minded watching over him nor wheeling him around in his carriage. But it was not until the family moved to Marceline, Missouri in the spring of 1906 that the bonds of friendship, love, and loyalty were forever forged between them. Roy Disney enjoyed telling his story to studio associates and visitors with great affection. When Walt and I were on the farm in Marceline, we had to sleep in the same bed. Now, Walt was just a little guy, and he was always wetting the bed. And he's been peeing on me ever since. I can say I'm the only man in the world who's been peed on by a genius. That's great. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah, you could just see what the close relationship they had. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously you said Walt wasn't, well, they all weren't close, but... Did any of the other Disney brothers have a, a lot to do with the company after? No. One of Walt and Roy's older brothers did become an insurance salesman. Okay. And uh, he did move to California after the studios was started mm-hmm. and was successful. Uh, and, and so they took him on. They allowed him to sell insurance on the, you know, yep. to, to the employees. But they found out a little later on that, he was sort of strong-arming okay. people, making them feel that if they didn't purchase their insurance, life insurance, from him, then they might lose their jobs. Oh. And so when Walt and Roy found that out, they uh, told him he needed he no longer could come on studio property okay. and all that. So otherwise, oh. no. One brother was very happy uh, being uh, working for the post office. Yeah. So, That's nice. That was it. Yeah. Now, Roy Disney once described their father, Elias Disney, as a man who spent his lifetime in a futile search for the bounty that America promised. Elias Disney's focus in his adult life was to make a living for his family. The discipline he applied to his sons was no different from what he had known as a boy. He wanted his sons to grow up with the same set of values he had learned. Roy was 12 when the family moved from Chicago to Marceline, Missouri, and like Walt, he remembered it with fondness. It was a very cute, sweet little farm, if you could describe a farm that way. 45 acres, and five of it in wonderful apples, peaches, and plums, and plenty of grapes and berries and little pasture plots. We had about a four-acre place where we raised hogs, and of course we had chickens, we had our pets and about four to six horses all the time and a few milk cows. It was just heaven for city kids. Roy Disney enjoyed his life in Marceline despite the heavy farm work he had to do. Unlike most older brothers, Roy didn't mind having his little brother and sister tag along with him on his chores and on adventures with his friends. Roy coddled Ruth, although he wasn't past scaring her from time to time. Once, when he came upon a garter snake whilst doing chores on the farm, he put it in its pocket and waited until an unsuspecting Ruth came along to pull it out of his pocket, causing her to scream. Hmm. 
The bond that had formed when Roy pushed Walt in his carriage in Chicago grew even stronger on the farm. Roy and Walt slept in the same bed, went off on playful adventures together, even though Roy was in high school and Walt hadn't started first grade. Walt's parents decided they wanted Walt and Ruth to begin first grade together, so Walt had to wait a year before starting school. Although Walt was only seven years old, he was a mature seven years old due to having three older brothers. Roy treated Walt as a companion and took him along on chores. One day, Roy had gotten a job washing the undertaker's hearse. He told Walt to come with him. Whilst, Walt, Roy, whilst Roy did the washing, Walt lay motionless inside the hearse, posing as one of the undertaker's clients. <laughs> Roy and Walt's two older brothers, Herbert and Ray, finally had enough of farm life and their father's strict attitude and left. The farm became too much for Elias and a 16-year-old Roy to work, so it was auctioned off and the family moved to Kansas City, Missouri. Elias purchased a paper route, which was mainly worked by Walt. Walt and Roy's bond continued to grow in Kansas City. In a 1965 interview, Walt said, We were great pals, and anything that happened, I'd tell him. I never kept anything from Roy. And we used to have fights, but it was funny. We'd argue and fight, but we'd crawl in bed and would usually tell each other the latest stories we'd heard about Pat and Mike or something like that. After high school graduation, Roy did not go on to college. No one in his family had ever gone to college, so Roy gave no thought of going to college. He decided to enter a profession that would hold opportunities for a lifetime, banking. At his first banking job at the First National Bank of Kansas City, Roy met Mitch Francis. The two would become lifetime best friends. One day Mitch said to Roy, I've got tickets to a dance given by a club I belong to. How about coming home with me and we can take my two sisters to the dance? Roy agreed, despite his claim to being a poor dancer. Roy met the love of his life that evening, Mitch's older sister Edna, who worked for the Kansas City Star and Times. Edna was impressed with Roy Disney. The slender 18-year-old Roy wasn't particularly handsome, but he had strong features and was athletic and humorous and well-mannered. Edna remembered meeting Roy's little brother. I thought he was a very cute youngster, so good-looking. He had such big brown eyes, so interested in what he was doing. Roy and I were just going together, and we'd been out to play tennis. We stopped at a drugstore to get a soda, and Walt came to see Roy because he wanted a quarter or half-dollar for paper to draw on. That was always the story. Roy provided the money for Walt's artistic endeavors. So it started even at a young age. Oh, yeah. After five years of going together, Roy and Edna decided to get married. But it was 1917, and Roy faced service in World War I. It would be another eight years before they were married. Roy Oliver Disney was sworn into the Navy in Kansas City on June 22, 1917, just two days before his 24th birthday. He was listed at 5 feet 7 inches, 124 pounds, with blue blue eyes, brown hair, and a ruddy complexion. Some scars from his farm days were listed. Forehead, right cheek, back of neck, fingers of right hand. After going through training at the Great Lakes Naval Station, 
training station in Chicago, Roy was assigned to the Navy Yard at Charleston, South Carolina. At Charleston, Roy was assigned as a seaman aboard the USS Adonis, which was part of a convoy fleet at a time when the German U-boats ruled the Atlantic. Roy made no mention of the dangers in his letters to Edna and to his family. After three Atlantic crossings, the armistice was declared, and Roy made his final voyage to the naval base at Bremington, Washington. He had more than two years left of his four-year enlistment, but the Navy was reducing its force, so early departures were encouraged. Roy was eager to return to Kansas City and to Edna Francis, and requested a discharge. On February 14, 1919, Roy was severed from the service. At 25, Roy returned to Kansas City, a changed man. He was stronger, more mature, wiser, and more worldly. His family had changed, too. His parents had returned to Chicago with Ruth. Herb Disney and his wife Louise and daughter Dorothy now resided in the Disney's Kansas City home, and Walt, barely 18, was driving an ambulance in France. Yeah, see, I didn't know that much about uh, Roy's actual military history before this, actually. I've, I mean, I've, there's plenty of books out there about Walt, but I, at least, maybe I don't search well, but I've never stumbled upon one that's actually about Roy, so... You know, I knew that he obviously served, and obviously that inspired Walt to also uh, be a part of it, too. So I assume that the reason Walt went to France, a lot of it, was to be closer to his brother. But if his brother was just sailing back and forth, then they would they have even ever seen each other? No. no? They never didn't see once? each other at all. Okay. And, um, yeah, and Roy, Roy when he... Initially spoke about his service because he did see a lot of danger. He t he talked about you know when they how they were constantly scanning oh yeah the, yeah. the seas for the U boats and when they would hear one explosion and they would start hearing explosion after explosion how they had to regroup. But then when he went back and sort of heard what and and read what he had written, mm -hmm. he felt he was he had made too much of it, and he felt embarrassed that he had spoken so much about his experiences in the war. So as a result, he never spoke about it again. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. He was a very humble man. Yeah. And, uh, oh. and a very simple man in many ways. Thinking very tell. You can tell. Yeah. yeah. So Walt and Edna grew, or Roy and Edna, I should say, grew even closer after an absence of almost two years. And they renewed their vow to be married. However, Edna, who was now working at an insurance company, was now supporting her deaf mother. So Roy returned to his job as a teller at the First National Bank, but his $90 a month income was not enough to support himself, much less a wife. So he and Edna decided to defer marriage until their situations improved. Walt returned to Kansas City in late 1919 with plenty of stories of his adventures in France. Walt had first gone to Chicago, where he decided not to return to school. He had stunned his father by turning down an an offer of a job at his father's jelly factory for $25 a week and announcing that he would earn his living as an artist. In later years, Walt said, I had two ambitions, to be an actor or an artist. It seemed easier to get a job as an artist than as an actor, so I decided on the former. In Kansas City, Walt took a job as an apprentice commercial artist. Elias, having lost his investment in the jelly company, returned to Kansas to seek work as a carpenter. 
With the exception of Ray, the entire Disney family lived under one roof. However, it was different now for Elias. All three sons were grown and employed, so he had no authority over them. Roy had not been well since he returned from the Navy. Roy had come down with the flu twice in the post-war epidemic of 1920. Roy's doctor told him to have his tonsils removed. Herb said he knew a doctor who could remove Roy's tonsils during his lunch hour so he wouldn't have to lose any work. After his tonsils were removed and Roy was returning to work, he had a hemorrhage. Edna's brother Mitch rushed him home and Roy was then taken to a hospital. An X-ray revealed a spot on Roy's lung. Apparently, Roy had acquired tuberculosis during his time in the Navy. At that time, the only treatment was rest and isolation in a dry climate. The government assigned Roy to a hospital in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Roy found the Santa Fe hospital too cold and austere. Roy and other dissatisfied patients walked out. Roy traveled to another veteran's hospital in Tucson, Arizona. Tucson was too hot and desolate for Roy. Against his doctor's wishes, Roy checked out and decided to see what his prospects would be in California. Roy moved to the quiet, church-filled town of Glendale and took a job as a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman. He finally got fed up with all the slam doors and angry housewives and gave it up. After having a relapse of his tuberculosis, Roy entered the Veterans Hospital at Sattel in West Los Angeles. News from home was a twilight, oh, I should say was a highlight of Roy's days in the hospital. Herb had become a mail carrier in Portland, Oregon. Elias, Flora, and Ruth followed Herb to Portland shortly afterwards. Walt was alone in Kansas City and moved into a rooming house and became a frequent visitor to the home of Edna Francis, where he would enjoy good conversation and a hearty home-cooked meal. Walt regularly wrote Roy about his plans for going into business. Roy would promptly respond with words of advice and a $20 bill, which he knew Walt needed. Wait, so did Edna go? To Tucson and then Los Angeles with Roy? No, she was still in Kansas City because she was caring for her mother. Oh, yep, you already mentioned that. Well, that's kind of, it's all kind of bizarre to think about in a way that, you know, if if the tuberculosis got bad enough and Roy died, I mean, nothing, none of this would be here. We wouldn't be doing this right now. Exactly. But at the same time, you know, too... Him starting to move out on that path of being in California and all that. So it's just weird how things work out. Right. And, and also then, if it wasn't for Walt, Roy would have probably just had sort of a risen in the banking field. Exactly. And, you know, maybe been a bank manager most of his yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. Just so it, nothing major. Yeah. Yeah. In, in um, let's see. Well, after Walt wrote Roy about his Laughagram studio going bankrupt, Roy wrote, Kid, I think you should get out of there. I don't think you can do any more for it. Walt paid a last visit to Edna's house, enjoyed a good meal, and poured out his heart about his frustration and disappointment over his business failure. The next morning, he boarded a train to join his brother in California. In 1968, Roy talked about Walt's Laughagram studio. I really believe, knowing there are things like that in life, that Walt would have gotten mired down with crooks. That was his problem in Kansas City. He made some nice little pictures, 
they were sold on a silly thing of a six-month trade acceptance. It was so stupid. So in six months' time, he delivered the pictures, and when the first one came due, the dam releasing company went into bankruptcy. They ultimately paid off, and the $28,000 came back into Walt's company and paid all his debts. And even his stockholders got part of their money back. So it was a pathetic, interesting little story. If Walt had gone on like that in life, he never would have gone any place, because there are always slickers to take you. Roy Disney once explained how the Disney company was started. That was when Walt came to Hollywood. He came out here in June of 23. It was actually July. I was in the hospital at Sattel. By correspondence, he sold somebody in New York on a series of pictures. One night, he found his way to my bed, which was on a row of beds on a screen porch. It was 11 or 12 o'clock at night, and he shaked me awake and showed me a telegram of acceptance of his offers. He said, what can I do now? Can you come out of here and help me to get this started? So I left the hospital the next day, and I've never been back since. Roy was officially discharged from the hospital on December 2nd, 1923, with the notation against medical advice. After his experience in Kansas City, Walt had not intended to re-enter the cartoon business. He believed that his experience in making the Kansas City films and photographing news events for newsreel companies qualified him to be a director. However, the studios rejected the 21-year-old Midwesterner. Roy worried about his brother and recalled, He was skinny as a rail from his harrowing experience in Kansas City, where he spent everything on the shop and nothing on himself. He looked like the devil. I remember he had a hacking cough, and I used to tell him, For Christ's sake, don't you get TB. (laughs) (laughs) Roy and Walt went into business together and had success with the Alice comedy series. Knowing his limitations as an animator, Walt knew he needed a better draftsman if the Alice series was to improve. So Walt sent for his friend, Ub Iwerks, from their Laughagram days in Kansas City. The addition of Ub did improve the quality of the pictures. Walt was relieved. Walt knew his strength was in story and gags. Roy agreed. When talking about Walt in later years, Roy said, He was a Rube Goldberg type of an artist. Uh, Google Rube Goldberg, kids. Walt Walt always put a meaning in his pictures, but the technique was not as good. He was always conscious of it and would certainly turn to a better artist if he had one around. Now that the Disney Brothers studio was more stable, Roy and Walt seemed ready for a change. This is how Roy remembered it. Walt and I were living in an apartment near the studio. First, we had just a single room in a house. Then later, we got an apartment. I used to go home in the afternoon and take a sleep because I was still convalescing. It came to the point where Walt didn't like my cooking. As I say, I used to go home early to take a nap in the afternoon and come back to the studio and work a couple of hours. Then I would go home and prepare something for dinner. Well, he just walked out on my meal one night and said, Okay, to, and I said, okay, to hell with you. If you don't like my cooking, let's quit this business of living together. So I wrote my girl in Kansas City a telegram and suggested she come out and we get married, which she did. Actually, Edna's reply was, in the telegram was, hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Walt was Roy's best man. Edna's maid of honor was Lillian Bounds, 
who had come to Los Angeles from her home in Lewiston, Idaho, in 1923 to visit her father, and had gotten a job inking and painting at the Disney Brothers studio. Walt and Lillian had begun dating steadily. I was not very artistic at all, and I was never very good at inking and painting, Lillian admitted. Later, Walt made me his secretary. But I made too many mistakes when he was dictating. He always said I was so bad he had to marry me. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. That's funny. Walt and Lillian were married in Lewiston three months after Roy and Edna were married. When talking about Lillian, Roy said, Lily was the kind of girl who let Walt have his way. Walt was a dominating person, and she was the kind that just went along with him in what he did. She worshipped him, and anything he wanted to do was all right with her. She had a lot of patience with him, and they used to fuss at each other in their own kind of kidding way. Now that they were married, Roy and Walt had an even greater incentive to grow the company. The Alice comedies were increased, and Roy negotiated a 50-50 split if the Alice comedies were expanded into toys, novelties, and comic strips. Both Walt and Roy agreed that their company needed larger quarters, and in July 1925, they put a $400 down payment on property with a stucco building at 2719 Hyperion Boulevard. When the Disney Brothers studio moved in the Hyperion studio in 1926, it wasn't just the studio's size and location that changed, so had the name of the studio. The sign atop the two-story building announced, Walt Disney Studio. Yeah, and, you know, obviously, uh, for the original studio, it's no longer a studio. They always take us past it, actually, on the Backstage Magic Tour. I think it's just like a dry cleaner or something. It's it's a Gelson's uh, supermarket. Yeah, exactly. But uh, they kind of just, they have that little bit of marking to let people know that that history was there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, definitely, if you ever find yourself lost in Los Angeles and Hollywood area trying to find... Uh, some unique stuff. Try to find the uh, the original studio. Yeah, there's a, a flat I think that was on studio property as they expanded and bought more property. Yeah, and um, that is still there. Okay, but it's yeah. privately owned. Yeah, but it, and also another remnant of the Hyperion Studios on the the Burbank Studio. Yeah. They call it the Bungalow. Yep. And if you go to uh, any D23 events, they're usually in the bungalow. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, because they don't take us in there. Yeah. And and actually, if you look at old photos of the Hyperion Studio, you can sort of figure it out. Okay. Okay. What is the bungalow? Yeah. And then what it was used for as time progressed. Hmm. So. Now, despite the claim of the PBS American Experience documentary on Walt Disney that this name change was done by Walt to satisfy his ego, Roy told Disney archivist Dave Smith, It was my idea. Walt was the creative member of the team. His name deserved to be on the pictures. With Roy's approval, Walt soon had his young animators from Kansas City working at the new Hyperion studio. Walt spent long hours on stories, coming up with gags, reviewing rough animation, and checking over the finished product. And this would be the pattern that Walt would maintain for the rest of his life. Looking back on those days, Roy recalled, he knew every nook and cranny of the studio. He knew everybody's work. He had practically done the type of work that everybody was doing. He'd 
spent many, many evenings at the studio going from desk to desk of the animators looking over the work they'd done in the daytime. He used to aggravate a lot of the boys because some of them, of course, looked on it as snooping. But Walt was just too busy to do it in the daytime, so he took this way of keeping up with the animation what was happening on a picture. The next day he would either have left notes with them or would call them in and talk their sequence over. The creative people, the artists, were always the fair-haired boys. Walt always looked at bookkeepers and lawyers and bankers like cement you had in the foundation of the building. Necessary, he guessed, but you couldn't peddle it. It was part of the drag of doing business. Some saw significance in the animation department being on the second floor of the Hyperion studio and the business offices on the lower floor. Roy once told his sister Ruth, I have my office on the main floor and Walt has his on the upper floor. He said, I have mine on the main floor so I can keep my feet on the ground. The Alice comedies had gone as far as they could creatively. Walt's distributor, Charles Mintz, contacted Walt and Roy to say a national organization was considering a new cartoon character, possibly a rabbit, since there were already too many cats in cartoons, including Julius in the Alice comedies. Mintz didn't tell the brothers the national organization was Universal Pictures. Ub Irics produced a series of sketches of a rabbit named Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Only after Carl Lamel, is that how you pronounce his name, Craig? You're our Universal yep, guy. That's what I thought. Head of Universal Pictures approved them, did Mintz reveal it was Universal Pictures buying the films. Oswald grew to be very popular. After a year of producing an Oswald cartoon every two weeks, the cost had outrun the income. In March of 1928, Walt and Roy agreed that Walt would go to New York and make the case to Mintz for a larger payment per cartoon. Before Walt left for New York, animator Les Clark went to Ub Irics to tell him he had been approached by Universal to work for them. Ub told Clark he had also been asked. When Ub told Walt about it, Walt wouldn't believe that Universal would steal his staff. We all know that story about how in New York, Walt discovered that not only was most of his staff hired by Universal Pictures, but he didn't even own the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Walt didn't want Roy to worry, so he sent a telegram with the message that everything was all right and that he was on his way home. Of course, Walt created Mickey Mouse on that train ride home. Mm -hmm. Lillian recalled, Walt showed me some of his sketches on the train coming home. They were cute little things. They could do anything. I asked him what he was going to call the character. Mortimer Mouse, he said. I said, that doesn't sound very good. And then I came up with Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse went on to become a worldwide sensation. Based on Mickey's popularity, Walt started a second cartoon series, Silly Symphonies, which also became very successful. However, the profit margin for cartoons was small. Roy determined the company could not continue to exist on a boom-or-bust economy, splurging when the money poured in and nearly collapsing when it did not. He needed a steady source of financing, and that meant associating the company with the bank. This contradicted everything Elias Disney had always taught his children. <coughs> Being an avowed socialist, Elias distrusted banks and nearly always paid cash. Roy realized you couldn't do that with a growing company. Roy approached A.P. Giannini, whose San Francisco-based Bank of Italy, later to become the Bank of America, was expanding in California. 
Giannini had experience with studio financing and was fascinated by the movies, especially cartoons. Against the wishes of his board, he agreed to lend money to Walt and Roy. This was the start of a 30-year association that often kept the Disney company afloat. Right after Mickey Mouse became a success, Walt signed the first merchandising deal to put Mickey Mouse's image on writing tablets. Roy realized that in order to profit from merchandise, it was necessary to protect the cartoon characters' names and likenesses from infringement. This decision by Roy marked a crucial milestone in the history of the Walt Disney Studio. Roy launched a campaign to convince corporations to use the likenesses of Mickey, Minnie, and other Disney characters on their products. Now, how hard did they actually have to go to try to get companies to put uh, the characters on merchandise? Or was it a situation where after some time people were knocking down their doors to to try to use the image? Mer- merchandising was like practically unknown in those days. Okay. So, uh, but once uh, once they saw how successful these yeah. tablets were, which I think Walt, Walt sold it for like two or $300 because they needed the cash so desperately. Yeah. And they're still trying to find that contract to figure out who was that person. Yeah. And because uh, it, it was never saved. Yeah. So, they... So, um, once Roy went out there and Mickey Mouse was so popular, companies couldn't uh, just fell over themselves, you know, um, trying to get to be associated with the Disney characters. Have any of these tablets ever popped up? I don't believe so. I don't think anybody's ever found them. That'd be so cool if one day one just happened to be buried in a box somewhere, even if it's a couple pages. Yeah, and they were very cheaply made, I mean, and all that. But there's always stories of how, as time went on and merchandise started appearing on the shelves, how, like, Walt and Roy and Kay Kamen, who was the head of merchandising, they would, when they'd go into stores, they would look for the Mickey Mouse merchandise. And if it was on a lower shelf, they would rearrange the shelves themselves. (laughs) That's great. And put Mickey Mouse up at eye level. Oh, yeah. And all that. That's perfect. Yeah. So, uh, after five years of marriage, though, neither Edna Disney nor Lillian Disney had become pregnant. It was a constant concern for both couples, especially for Roy and Edna, since Edna was approaching 40. After consulting with doctors, Edna became pregnant. After three days of labor and a cesarean section, Edna gave birth to Roy Edward named after his father and mother, on January 10, 1930. After taking forced vacation, Walt followed his doctor's advice to exercise more. Lillian's doctor also advised her to exercise as a helpful way to encourage pregnancy. On December 18, 1933, eight years after their wedding, Lillian gave birth to a daughter, Diane Marie. Three years later, Walt and Lillian adopted another daughter they named Sharon May. Walt and Roy had no sooner signed a distribution contract with United Artists when Walt announced he wanted to produce cartoons in color. Roy was stunned. He argued color would add greatly to the cost of the cartoons, and United Artists wouldn't advance any more funding. Walt argued that color would increase the popularity of the cartoons, and the additional play dates and extended runs would mean more revenue in the long run. Technicolor had offered Walt the chance to introduce its new process for his cartoon shorts since it was still in the experimental stage. 
Walt responded by telling the Technicolor people that Roy opposed color because he doubted he could, would see a profit on the cartoons. But Walt hinted he might be able to convince Roy if Technicolor agreed to give Disney a two-year exclusivity on the process. Technicolor consented. Roy grudgingly accepted the proposal, but only if Walt applied color to the Silly Symphonies and not Mickey Mouse. Walt agreed since Silly Symphonies had never achieved the popularity of the Mickey Mouse cartoons, and this would be a way to boost the Silly Symphony series. Uh, and it's so crazy that, you know, just like Walt kind of pioneered sound in cartoons, that he was also he was able to do it with color again. I mean, I know it all would have happened eventually. That's uh, just common, but it'd be weird to think that if we were still living in this time and they only had black and white and and mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, no no talking movies. Right. And, and then and then the fact that he had the Technicolor contract, other other cartoon other movie studios who had cartoon divisions did their own color cartoons, but none of them were as vibrant yeah, yeah. or had the wide variety of colors that the Disney cartoons did. Yeah, absolutely. Did. Yeah. yeah. Now, Walt's plan worked. In in a letter to their parents in 1933, Roy wrote, Our color pictures, while costing a lot more money, promise to be a very good investment. They have met with very wonderful success. And in England, they are doing a much better business on color pictures than on the black and white. It is possible that we may go to all color next year. However, Roy continued to insist the Mickey Mouse cartoons remain in black and white. It wasn't until the release of the band concert in 1935 that the Mickey Mouse cartoons were produced in color. Do you know why that is? Uh, just because Roy wouldn't hmm. uh, agree with the funding. Yeah. Okay. So, and the other issue was happening is Mickey Mouse's popularity was starting to fade. To and so this was another way to boost exactly. um, Mickey I, Mouse. Makes sense, yeah. yeah because Mickey, uh, Mickey was being overshadowed by Donald Duck exactly. and Goofy and, so those, and Pluto, and those cartoons are, were v- extremely popular. Yeah, yeah. So, but Mickey had fallen into the um, sort of the, the good boy role, almost straight man yeah. role. Oh, I mean, it worked out for him in the long run. <laughs> The Three Little Pigs was wildly successful for the Silly Symphony series. The huge popularity of the song, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, took the studio by surprise. No arrangements had been made to release the song on sheet music or phonograph records. Roy quickly entered in a contract with Irving Berlin's music publishing company. Roy estimated the Three Little Pigs earned three times the money of the average cartoon. The Three Little Pigs was bringing in revenue from dolls, ceramics, books, and other products. Under the leadership of Kay Kamen, the merchandising of Disney characters had become a major source of income for the studio in the United States and abroad. Roy had to hire lawyers and sales representatives to control the pirating of Disney characters in Europe. In his business dealings, Roy rarely exposed the sentimental side. But he could easily cry watching the son he and Edna had waited for so long. In his letters to his parents, Roy usually wrote about Roy Edward before reporting on events at the studio. Roy rejoiced in the honors that were pouring in for his younger brother, who had become a celebrity. And Roy never showed a hint of jealousy. He would write letters to his parents praising Walt and his accomplishments. Walt needed a new challenge. 
and producing the first feature cartoon seemed like the perfect challenge to him. Lillian said cartoons are eight minutes and people would be bored if they were ten times as long. Roy also expressed his doubt their company would have the resources to produce something so ambitious. Walt estimated the film would cost half a million dollars. Roy's objections melted away under Walt's persuasion, and Roy began negotiations with various investors to obtain the financing needed to begin the project. Roy was able to get the backing of A.P. Giannini and the Bank of America. The making of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves would begin. This was a period of great tension as Walt sweated through the story, the animation, the music, the recording. Roy regarded these two years as the crisis years as Walt struggled to create his vision of Snow White and Roy worked to placate the Bank of America, which was supplying the funds. If Snow White flopped, the company would be ruined. Walt was making dozens of decisions daily, sometimes compromising on his vision and sometimes throwing out whole sequences in rough animation to start again. Roy felt helpless as the cost of Snow White mounted. Roy, of course, was quite different from Walt, observed Imagineer John Hench, who started out delivering mail at the studio in the late 30s. Walt was prone to take risks. His security was the fact that he really thought the ideas that kept popping up, his own especially, were good and valid. Roy had a much more conservative approach to things. It amused all of us when we used to take an audience reaction at the studio to scenes of rough cuts of features. There was always one comment. Walt, stick to shorts. We knew who that was. It was Roy. Walt was so annoyed. He'd say, I gotta find this guy and explain to him. He just doesn't have the right spirit here. He keeps saying, stick to shorts all the time. He never did find out because none of us ever told him. <laughs> Snow White was wildly successful. The reviews were all positive. Snow White set a new record for the length of run at Radio City Music Hall in New York. After 14 years of scrambling for every dollar, this sudden prosperity, prosperity thrilled Roy Disney. Despite this, he was less confident, confident about the future than Walt, who had all kinds of ideas for expansion. Events in Europe and the Far East had Roy concerned. But he would not dampen Walt's enthusiasm. So I have uh, just been so busy. I haven't had a chance. That documentary that ABC aired about Snow White, was there anything <clears throat> for uh, massive Disney fans to really get excited about in there? Or was it just kind of uh, recycled information? It was, it was fun. It was recycled information. They had, a, they had some good clips in there okay. and some good uh, storyboard animation. Okay. I suspect it's going to make it onto the, this new uh, Blu-ray that yeah. they're releasing. What did, I, I forget what the, category this one is it's in. It's now the Walt Disney Signature Collection, ah, okay. which I'm very annoyed about because they didn't even finish up this collection. They still had... Uh, so this would have been the diamond one. They mm -hmm. didn't finish up with Pinocchio being put in there. I so, know, and that's my favorite of yeah, the classics. Yeah, and I never bought it in the last edition specifically because I wanted to have all the Blu-rays in this edition, and now they completely screwed it up. And See, that's how they're yeah. going to keep making money off of us, cause they'll, and they'll add enough new little things that will make us want to have it. Yeah, I just don't know if I have the money this time around. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so... 
So after the release of Snow White, the Disney Brothers' principles didn't change. Since Roy and Walt were sole owners of the company, the returns of Snow White could have made them very rich, even by Hollywood standards. Instead, they put most of the money back into the company. Their own styles of living hardly changed. Walt had begun the preliminary planning for Pinocchio and Bambi as Snow White was being completed. Walt had also become intrigued with interpreting classical music with animation. Walt had wanted to reinvigorate the sagging career of Mickey Mouse, who had been overshadowed by Donald Duck and Goofy, by giving him the starring role in a version of the old fairy tale, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Pinocchio and Fantasia were box office disappointments. Roy said of Fantasia, he really didn't have the artist to do what he hoped to do. He saw more possibilities than he got out of it. Walt made a lot of decisions against his will, and he had to put up with what he had available to work with. Whilst Roy was in Europe arranging for the openings of Snow White in 1938, he received an urgent memo from studio lawyer Gunther Lessing. Walt wanted Roy to return as soon as possible. The brothers had been talking about the need for a new studio for several months, as it had become obvious that the Hyperion studio could no longer contain all of Walt's ambitions. A piece of property had become available near the Warner Brothers studio on Buena Vista Street in Burbank. When he returned, Walt placed a $10,000 deposit on the property. The total price would be $101,897.10. I was under what was that 10 cents? <laughs> Despite having three feature films in production and still supervising the cartoon shorts, Walt enthusiastically began the planning of the new studio. The move to the new studio began at the end of 1939. One month later, Hitler invaded Poland. Roy's greatest fear had come true. The foreign market, which accounted for 45% of the studio's income, collapsed under the beginning of war in Europe. Roy had anticipated the inevitable war when he was in Europe arranging for the openings of Snow White in 1938. He arrived in Vienna one week after the invasion of Austria and saw Nazi flags flying everywhere and German military trucks parading around the Ringestrasse. With the foreign market closed, the Walt Disney Studio faced an uncertain future in the United States. Pinocchio opened in February 1940. Although technically superior to Snow White, it lacked the fairy tale quality of its predecessor that had made Snow White so endearing. Ticket sales were good, but not good enough to offset the $2.6 million production costs, half a million more than Snow White. The debt to the Bank of America continued to rise, and the expensive features continued to perform poorly. Roy decided the company needed another source of financing. His solution was a stock offering. Walt had long resisted a public stock offering, fearing his total creative control might be challenged by investors. At Roy's insistence, Walt agreed to issuance of preferred and common stock in April 1940. Roy had misgivings about issuing stock. When you go public, he later said, it changes your life. Where you were free to do things, you are bound by a lot of conventions, bound to other owners. The sale of the over-the-counter stock bought $3,500,000 into the company. But Roy knew more drastic action was needed for the studio to survive. In April 1940, Roy called for a cost reduction of 
no additions to payroll without his written approval, no purchases without his written approval, no new jobs to be established without a complete review of need and his written approval. After meeting with Roy and Walt and the board of Bank of America, A.P. Giannini extended their loan to the Disney studio. Roy, knowing his bank would not extend its goodwill and money forever, decided the studio needed to show its good faith by increasing its economic measures. The Bank of America had vetoed any work on a new feature, so Roy and the production staff worked out a production program that included regular short subjects, the South American short subjects, which became the two features, Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros, completion of Bambi, the completion of the Mickey feature, which was Mickey and the Beanstalk, released as part of Fun and Fancy Free, or they could choose The Wind in the Willows on a slow schedule, and a very modest story development program. In a memo to Walt dated March 14, 1941, Roy painted a bleak picture of the company's financial condition and proposed a further 20% reduction in expenses, stopping all work on production beyond the present year, closing the process lab, cutting the training school, and going down the line of our personnel and releasing everyone who can possibly be released without affecting the immediate work in progress, and asking all employees to take a graduated pay cut. Without these drastic measures, they could be forced to go into receivership or bankruptcy. For once, Walt agreed with his brother's reasoning. The pink slips were a blow to those who believed they had a lifetime job with Disney. Some complained the Disney brothers were profiting from the situation and skimming the profits to make themselves richer. Complaints about low wages, little chance for advancement, and work drudgery began to make the rounds. Those who remained were uneasy, wondered if there would be another round of layoffs, and if the studio would even survive. This uncertainty made many of the employees good prospects for union organizers. A picket line appeared outside the studio gate on May 29, 1941. The leader of the Screen Cartoonists Guild, Herbert Sorrell, had called a strike. Roy's daughter-in-law, Patty Disney, believes the strike angered Walt and saddened Roy. At first bewildered by the whole situation, Walt became incensed and defiant toward the strikers. Walt responded angrily to their taunts and almost got into a fistfight with a heckler. Roy remained in his office arranging for negotiations, struggling to keep the studio functioning with the reduced staff. Roy made no public statements, and he became alarmed by the fierceness of Walt's attacks. Roy became convinced that Walt's presence at the center of all this was neither good for Walt nor for the studio. As Roy tried to come up with an excuse to lure Walt away from the studio, the United States government stepped in. The United States government and Nelson Rockefeller, who was the coordinator of inter-American affairs, were worried that the large number of German and Italian expatriates in South America would sway those countries to favor the Axis powers over the Allied powers. They were convinced Walt Disney would be the ideal ambassador for the American cause. Walt was reluctant until the government said they would partially finance films to be made about South America. Walt accepted. Company lawyer Gunther Lessing assured Walt he would make a deal with the union leaders. The deal Lessing made created as many problems as it solved. Roy was disappointed with the deal, but wanted the strike to be over by the time Walt and his entourage returned from South America. 
On the day Walt left, Roy flew to Washington in an attempt to break the strike stalemate. A Labor Department official agreed with Roy's suggestion of a studio layoff to cool down the situation. The union refused, which angered the Labor Department. Roy then shut down the studio for two weeks or until the layoff was decided to avoid any accusations of a lockout. Roy flew to Washington four times to negotiate with Labor Department arbitrators. Each flight took 30 hours into DC-3. The union also sent their delegation, and after a two-day session in Washington, the government official arbitrated it by giving the union what they demanded. Having no recourse, Roy ordered the union demands carried out. They included a set ratio of strikers to non-strikers in each department, strike pay, and retroactive salary increases. Roy wrote Walt, I really think a lot of goodwill came out of all our past trouble, and that we are now on a firm basis on which to go ahead. A month after Walt returned from South America, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Looking back on the war years, Roy said, The 40s brought the war and our frozen markets. It was a bad decade for us. We really got in a tight bind around here. We were a young organization, and our fellows were subject to the draft. We lost many, many of them. To counteract losing our boys, Walt jumped in and started making films for the services. On the strength of that, we were able to keep some of the boys and keep a nucleus of an organization. After the war, those working closest to Walt noticed he seemed to be having a lack of confidence for the first time in his career. The company was so broke after the war, not even one feature was in production. There's only enough money to piece together a few musical shorts and release them as Make Mine Music and Fun and Fancy Free. As a stopgap measure to bring in much-needed revenue, the studio produced Song of the South and So Dear to My Heart, combining segments of animation with live-action films. In December 1945, Roy met with Joe Rosenberg of the Bank of America to discuss the company's financial needs. The banker was shocked when Roy provided the figures of $4.5 million for expenses in 1946 and $5.8 million for 1947. Rosenberg recovered when Roy explained how the money would be used and became quite cooperative. In a memo to Walt three months later, Roy was very optimistic about the company's future. Roy foresaw expanding markets for Disney films and he offered suggestions for improvement. The injection of new selling angles, personalities, appeal, appealing songs, etc. into our films would provide a more potent ammunition for exploitation and thus win for us greater box office acceptance where we are now weakest. Roy proposed what he believed to be the ideal program, which included three features a year. One a package of short films, one combining live action and animation, one full-length cartoon feature, plus 18 shorts. Roy provided a complete rundown of revenue prospects for pictures already planned. Roy ended with a plea. Above, Walt, I have tried to give you a brief picture of the reasons why, in my opinion, we must have a meeting of minds on our program for the years ahead, and why, once that agreement is reached, we must take the necessary steps to hew to that program. Otherwise, we will be drifting with an increasingly heavy burden on our shoulders. The advantages of setting such a course, one, it means you can go forward in your desire to make fine pictures with fewer uncertainties and restrictions. 
Two, it means you can plan a more specific property buying program. This is vital because it is where everything starts. Three, it means we can make long-range distribution, selling, and exploitation plans. Four, it means we can meet our financial obligations to the bank and our stockholders. Five, it means we can have a busy, successful, inspired studio, which in turn means the solution of a thousand and one trivial yet aggravating problems. This would be the formula that would restore the fortunes of the Disney company and provide the guidelines for years to come. Preparation of animated features remained at a standstill during the war. Now Walt needed to put one into production to begin the studio's financial recovery. It was a difficult decision for Walt. He considered Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Cinderella. Sensing Walt's indecision, Roy shared his opinion. He opposed Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. Neither appealed to Roy's properties that would make good motion pictures, but Walt refused to shelve them. Recalling those days, Roy said, I remember one night he came down to my office and we sat there from quitting time to eight or so. I finally said, look, you're letting this place drive you nuts. That's one place I'm not going with you. I walked out on him. I didn't sleep that night and he didn't either. The next morning I'm at my desk wondering what the hell do we do? We're in a hell of a fix, tight payroll on our hands and everything. You don't worry about yourself. You worry about your commitments, your involvements. I felt awfully low. I heard his cough and his footsteps coming down the hall. He came in and he was filled up. He could hardly talk. He says, isn't it amazing what a horse's ass a fella can sometimes be? <laughs> As he walked out, that's how we settled our differences. <laughs> Walt placed Cinderella into production. Yeah, what do you think would have happened? If they would have went through with uh, Alice or Peter Pan and fast-tracked those. They never would have made it because yeah. um, neither were great successes. Peter Pan was. Cinderella was an enormous success. And, and Walt always said afterwards, if it was not for Cinderella, they never would have recovered financially. Yeah. I mean, just even thinking about some of the, uh, some of the package films, like you already mentioned, and stuff like So Dear to My Heart. It's, it's amazing, though, how they still do have a legacy that people care about them. Uh, to this day, especially like me, I know I, it's not ones that I watch often, but uh, some of those lesser cared about films ended up being some of my favorites. Yeah. So, yeah. but it, it, or you know, if they did recover, it would have taken them much, much longer. Um, one of Roy's hesitations for Disneyland is because they were still recovering from the war, yeah. and so that gives you an idea how long you know it, it took the studio to bounce. Oh, yeah, back. I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah. I could always tell when Dad was having a fight with Walt, Roy Edward Disney once said. When he came home in the evening, I could hear his car slam into the driveway. I learned to stay in another room when he came into the house. Except for the fraternal battles, Roy seldom brought his work home. He preferred not to inflict his studio problems on Edna and Roy. Whenever possible, Edna accompanied Roy on his business trips. Roy relied on Edna to help organize and entertain at receptions and dinners. Her down-home manner put strangers immediately at ease. And she asked them about their families, and especially their children. She was able to wipe away any air of uncomfortable formality. In business, Roy knew what he wanted and where he wanted to get. Everyone who did business with Roy talked about knowing where you stood— a deal was a deal, and a handshake deal was as good as anything. He meant what he said, and he said what he meant. 
The start of the studio's True Life Adventures series would set the stage for one of Roy's biggest gambles, the establishment of a distribution company. Since the beginning of the studio in 1923, the Disney brothers believed they had suffered financial loss by underhanded or incompetent distribution of their pictures. RKO was the current distributive distributor of Disney films, but the RKO salesmen were completely baffled by how to release a full-length feature on the creatures of the desert entitled The Living Desert. Roy decided to release it himself and worked it out with RKO so they wouldn't feel hurt. Roy put together a sales force. The first screenings of The Living Desert met with an enthusiastic reception. Roy outlined a campaign to sell The Living Desert together with a cartoon featurette, Ben and Me. The Living Desert brought in a good profit for the Disney company, $4 million versus the $300,000 production cost, with no distribution fee to Mm -hmm. RKO. Roy got together with his men in charge of domestic and foreign film distribution and told them about Walt's upcoming films, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Lady and the Tramp. Then he asked them, what do you think of forming our own distribution company? Roy got an enthusiastic yes. Roy reached for the telephone and made a call. Walt, we've decided to form our own distribution company. What do you think? Walt agreed. After mulling over a name for the new company, Roy said, What's wrong with Buena Vista? Everyone agreed on the name of the street that fronted the studio. Junior's got his hand in the cookie jar again. That was Roy's favorite expression when he learned, not from Walt, but from a studio employee, that his kid brother was plotting another big project for which Roy would need to find money. But Roy didn't know, when he learned of Walt's plan for an amusement park, that it would be the company's biggest gamble. When Walt first proposed his idea, Roy expressed his customary caution. The studio was still slowly recovering from its wartime depression, and the studio's financial health continued to fluctuate from film to film. Cinderella was a financial success. Alice in Wonderland was not. Lacking support from Roy, Walt decided to finance the planning stages of Disneyland himself. He established Walt Disney Incorporated and installed himself as president. Roy was concerned that stockholders would be disturbed over the possible conflict of interest between Walt Disney Productions and Walt Disney Incorporated. He suggested to Walt that he change the name of the company, and it became Wed Enterprises, Walt's initials. Roy's concern for his brother continued. After the success of Snow White, Roy tried to get the rights to the Oz books. He discovered the heirs of L. Frank Baum, the author who the author, did not own any of Baum's writings. That concerned Roy, and he began to worry about his brother's family. What would happen to them if something happened to Walt? He had no ownership in the company outside of his stock. He suggested that Walt form a personal holding company and lease his name to the corporation on a royalty basis. He said to do it with attorneys so there would be no question of it being approved. Walt followed Roy's advice, and over the years, it provided considerable income for Walt and his family. After viewing the conceptual plans for Disneyland and hearing Walt's vision for the park, Roy was finally on board. He realized nothing could stop Walt from pursuing his desire for a park, but he objected to Walt's plan to locate the park somewhere in Burbank. Edna Disney recalled Roy telling Walt, Oh, we can't do that. We should do it in a bigger way. Of course, bigger meant more money. 
If you want to learn how Roy shopped Disneyland around to bankers for financing and negotiated a television agreement with the ABC network to invest in the park, please listen to my history series, 60 Years of Disneyland, in the archives of the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition. As Disney lawyer Luther Marr said, Roy did everything he could to raise the money. He hawked the pictures, using them as collateral for the Bank of America loan. He hawked the leases at Disneyland. The whole thing had been borrowed on. He used ABC's credit line. He used everything there was to use. On a sunny day in July 1955, Roy and Edna got ready for the drive from their Toluca Lake home to Anaheim. Roy had a smile on his face. So many things had gone wrong in the building of Disneyland, Roy was prepared for anything. As they drove to Orange County in their Cadillac sedan, Roy noted the volume of traffic had increased. A good sign. As they approached Anaheim, cars, trucks, motorhomes were bumper to bumper. Roy was encouraged. Driving past the Disneyland parking lot, Roy checked the number of parked cars and was pleased with what he saw. Roy parked the Cadillac in his reserved space, and he and Edna relaxed in the car as Edna brought out a homemade cake and thermos of coffee she had packed at home. Roy sipped the coffee as he happily watched the faces of the excited children as they pulled their parents towards the entrance to Disneyland. A young park worker ran up to Roy's car. Mr. Disney, I'm glad I found you, he said breathlessly. A lot of these people have been stuck in traffic for hours, and the kids need to go to the bathroom. Now they're peeing all over the lot. God bless them, Roy said with a big smile. Let them pee. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. But it's just amazing as we go through this how much of 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 what of what Walt Disney Productions did was all Roy's idea. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's insane. It's something that gets glossed over for mm-hmm. the average person out there, but right. well we're all focused on the creative side of it. Exactly. And realize none of it would have happened without Roy. Oh yeah. As Walt Disney Productions expanded in the 1950s, the studio was divided between Walt's boys and Roy's boys, and it was often an adversarial relationship. Walt presided over the creative side, and he ruled with a firm hand. Discontent was common. Walt expected perfection and was frustrated when they didn't achieve it. He almost never complimented an artist for their work. Most who worked with Walt could recall only one or two instances when Walt praised their work, and they usually heard about it from a second party. Walt's boys were motivated not by being stroked, but by the sheer power of Walt's genius. Roy's boys, on the financial and legal side, felt affection for their boss. Just as Edna accompanied Roy on most of his business trips, Roy encouraged his executives to travel with their wives. Like Edna, the wives could be valuable in entertaining clients. It would also help solidify marriages which might be endangered when husbands traveled along to distant cities. Jobs well done always won praise from Roy. He was especially attentive attentive to young members of his staff. It's just funny that they kind of, in a way, they almost, it almost seems like they had that dynamic uh, good cop, bad cop thing working. But at the same time, you know, animators and stuff look back at Walt and, you know, they still love him despite... Mm-hmm. That bad side, too. So it, it worked out for everyone. Well, uh, it did. It somehow all managed to work yeah. out in the long run. Up until the person that sort of held a lot of it together passed away. Yeah. <laughs> 
Except during conferences, Roy's office door remained open, and staff members are welcome to stop by to ask questions. Often he would question them. I always hire people who are smarter than me, he bragged. He was awed by the knowledge of his staff members with law and business degrees, and he appeared to absorb everything they told him, no matter how intricate. In negotiations, he often surprised the opposing parties with his grasp of the situation. After the opening of Disneyland, Walt Disney Productions rapidly expanded. Walt and Roy were faced with overwhelming responsibilities. Roy continued to maintain close ties with the banks and investment houses, oversaw releases of films through Buena Vista, supervised the foreign sales offices and made regular visits abroad, kept a watchful eye on the merchandising and pursued infringements, dealt with the board of directors and stockholders, and controlled all legal aspects of the corporation. Walt regularly toured Disneyland to determine what improvements were needed, oversaw animation, though not as closely as before. Sleeping Beauty took four and one-half years to complete, partly because of Walt's preoccupation with Disneyland. He contributed to live-action scripts and visited European locations, filmed his introductions to the television show, decided on scripts and casting for all the features and television shows, and spent time with WED in planning new attractions for Disneyland and working on other projects for the future. As the brothers' responsibilities increased, the intimate relationship between them began to erode. Gatherings of the two families became more infrequent, and Walt and Roy rarely visited each other's offices. Walt and Roy's periods of strained relations became more frequent. Usually, Roy, the short-tempered brother, was the instigator. One day at Walt's invitation, Roy attended a screening of Ten Who Dared in an animation-building projection room. The story of one-armed John Wesley Powell's exploration trip down the Colorado River in 1869 had been one of Walt's favorite projects. Ten Who Dared proved to be awful. It's hard to think of another Disney film so totally bad, wrote Leonard Maltin in his book, The Disney (laughs) Films. So now I've got to see if this is on YouTube or something. Oh, yeah, I've never even heard of it. I hadn't either. When the lights came up in the projection room, everyone just sat in embarrassed (laughs) silence. Well, Roy finally spoke up, I guess everybody's got their stinkers. Walt steamed and he refused to speak to his brother for weeks. Amid all the successes, an issue persistently smoldered in Roy's mind, and it wouldn't go away. It went back to 1952 when Walt wanted to plan and build Disneyland. As a result of Roy's cool response to the idea, Walt started his own personal services company, which had been Roy's idea, to finance and build Disneyland. Outside lawyers were hired to negotiate the contract with the lawyers of Walt Disney Productions. Since Walt had created the cartoon characters and the merchandising of them bore his name, he reasoned that he was entitled to a percentage of the profits from the merchandising. He also proposed to build his own and and own the, the steam train circling Disneyland since it originated from his own Carrollwood Pacific Railroad that had once circled his home. After lengthy and heated negotiations, it was agreed that Walt's company, WED, would own the railroad and receive 10% of all merchandising. WED would conceive and engineer attractions for the park and then sell them to the company at no cost, plus overhead. Walt would receive a $153,000 salary from Walt Disney Productions, plus a percentage of profits from the films. Roy had always had serious misgivings about the deal, fearing the stockholders would accuse Walt and 
of profiteering from things he had created for the company. However, there was no arguing that Walt, once he made up his mind and set a course. So Roy agreed rather than risk a battle with Walt. Roy did decide to take a risky move. He sought approval for the contract only from the board of directors and not the shareholders to avoid public controversy. Three of the board members resigned, worried that they would be held liable if the stockholders sued. The remaining board members reluctantly approved the contract. Walt got what he wanted, and in a few years, the monorail joined the railroad as part of Wed's assets. Then Roy's biggest fears happened. A shareholder sued the corporation over Walt's contract, charging it should have been presented for a vote to the shareholders. Disney's lawyer stepped in and cited an existing California law requiring plaintiffs in civil suits to post a bond covering the legal fees in case the suit was lost. The shareholder was not able to post the bond, and the case was dismissed. The case, and no other challenge, was made over um, Walt's contract. The brothers resumed their relationship, but a rift was growing between them. In their 30 years as business partners, they had never been placed in a legal adversarial relationship. Most studio employees were unaware of the coolness between the brothers, but it was obvious to those who worked closely with Walt and Roy. And as a result, the breach between Walt's boys and Roy's boys also grew. By 1963, Roy knew he could no longer postpone the matter of wed. As Walt Disney Productions expanded, so did the number of shareholders. The company could not risk a challenge to Walt's agreement with WED, especially now that the company had committed to their biggest challenge yet, the Florida Project. They could not afford a financial scandal. Roy had to do the one thing he dreaded the most, to confront Walt. The timing could not have been worse. Walt had never driven himself harder than he was now. Besides the films, Disneyland and the television show, he was working on plans for a winter resort in the California Sierras, a model city as part of the Florida Project, and the College of the Arts. Walt was in constant pain from an old polo injury, and he was easily irritated. Rather than bring up the issue with Walt in a pressure cooker environment of the studio, Roy decided it would be best to bring the topic up in a remote, peaceful place, such as Walt and Lillian's desert retreat at Smoke Tree Ranch in Palm Springs. The two couples went there for a long weekend, but there was no peace. Roy would never talk about his disagreements with Walt, but Edna did. She told her daughter-in-law, Patty, that the two brothers shouted and railed at each other for three days. Edna and Lillian could only hide out in another part of the house. (laughs) The weekend ended in dreadful accusations. Never in their lifetimes had the brothers exchanged such harsh words. For months, the brothers would not talk to each other. For important corporate matters, they sent curt, impersonal memos. Other messages were conveyed by messengers who were acceptable to both men. Dick Morrow, general counsel for the corporation, observed that despite the lack of direct communication between Roy and Walt, the love between the brothers never diminished in the slightest, and I heard that from each of them individually. People who tried to take advantage of the situation and tried to play off one against the other faced trouble. It was a general conflict between who was running the company and who was going to prevail. 
Walt was the creative side or Roy in the administrative side. The brothers just weren't on track together, although each of them recognized the genius of the other one and had great respect for it. But now Walt's contract was coming up for renewal. Roy made the decision that things needed to change. Walt Disney Productions had achieved respect in the financial world, the stock was now traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Security laws had changed since Walt's personal services contract had been instituted. The Disney lawyers were warned to avoid any public reference to the contract. Lawyers for the two parties began their negotiations. Walt's side refused to accept Roy's terms, and Roy's side refused to amend them. No lawyers ceded any ground. One late afternoon, Roy returned to his office from a meeting. The negotiations over Walt's contract were being conducted in the conference room next door to Roy's office. He could hear the raised voices and sense the undercurrent of anger. It became obvious to Roy that his studio lawyers wouldn't concede anything. Roy walked into the conference room and everyone became silent. Roy turned to his negotiation team and said, Let me say a few words. You seem to forget how important Walt Disney has been to you and your lives. None of us would be here in these offices if it hadn't been for Walt. All your jobs, all the benefits you have, all came from Walt and his contributions. He deserves better treatment than what's being shown here. The climate of the room changed immediately. An agreement was reached. Walt received a 10-year extension on the ownership of the trains and monorail, and his royalty contract would remain intact. The studio would purchase WED with its architectural and engineering departments. WED would later become Walt Disney Imagineering. Walt's company became Retlaw, Walter spelled backwards. The brotherly feud was over and faded into Disney legend. Walt appeared in Roy's office bearing a birthday present, an Indian pipe of peace. The brothers laughed and reminisced. Later that day, Walt sent a letter to his brother. It was wonderful to smoke the pipe of peace with you again. The clouds that rise are very beautiful. I think between us over the years we have accomplished something. There was a time when we couldn't borrow a thousand dollars, and now I understand we owe twenty-four million. But in all sincerity, happy birthday and many more, and I love you. At the end of 1963, Roy Disney was 70 years old. Most of the other pioneering founders of movie studios had passed away or been deposed. Walt often spoke of retiring to enjoy his grandchildren and take pleasure trips with Edna. But he found himself busier than ever before in the 40 years of the Disney company. Roy was faced with the challenges of financing the Florida Project and helping Walt fulfill his two current obsessions, the City of Tomorrow and the College of the Arts. Can management produce Disney product after Disney? Walt mused to a magazine writer during an interview. That's the $64 question. As well as I can, I'm untying the apron strings. And indeed, Walt seemed to be freeing himself from other responsibilities so he could concentrate on Epcot and Cal Arts. It was these visionary projects that absorbed Walt's thoughts in his early 60s. Everything else had occupied his days, the films, the animated features, the television show, the endless improvement of Disneyland, and the planning of the Florida version of Disneyland he no longer had a passion for. He had done all those things before. Walt's passion for innovation took him from the world of entertainment to the future of the world. 
Walt was envisioning a city that would be free of the modern urban problems and the college that would nurture new generations of artists. Walt would not live long enough to realize either dream. That would be left to his brother Roy. In our remaining January episodes of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I will examine how Roy carried on his brother's vision and dreams. Next week in Episode 7, Pursuing the Dream Without the Dreamer, we'll examine how Walt Disney's passing in December 1966 impacted the creative course of the entire Disney World project. Passing the legislation to form the Reedy Creek Improvement District was critical to Walt Disney Productions' ability to build Project Florida as Walt envisioned it. In Episode 8, Up the Creek, Craig and I chronicle the hurdles the company conquered to pass this legislation and explain its importance for the construction of Walt Disney World. Finally, in Episode 9, Designing a Whole New World, David Younger, author of Theme Park Design and the Art of Themed Art Entertainment, talks with us about the science and art of designing a theme park, why Disneyland is considered the first theme park, the different approaches the Imagineers took in designing the Magic Kingdom and Epcot Center, which was Disney's first park without a castle, and shares his advice for becoming a theme park manager. So, so um, Craig, so what do you think of um, sort of this relationship between Walt and Roy and their relationship with their father? Because I think he had an impact on them and their drive. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I just wish, and maybe you'll tell me, but I wish there was more on Roy out there now because this has, I mean, you, you do read about him in all the different publications about Walt, but uh, it's, it's just such a... You know, it's it's a perfect relationship. It's it's very rare whenever two people can work together so well, especially whenever it's family like that. You know, everyone loves their family, but at the same time, making what they did entirely the way they did it, it's just it's so fascinating. And the one thing I was going to ask you that, uh, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned their father, but in terms of uh, whenever their mother died, did uh, obviously Walt took a lot of uh, mm-hmm. emotional impact from that. Do you know how Roy really, how he was affected by that? Did it, did it show through in his work in any way or at all? Or was it more of just uh, the focus was on Walt and all that? A, a lot of the focus in the books and all that is on Walt. Yeah. I mean, Roy was also... Um, you know, horrified by what happened because yeah, yeah. the furnace was installed incorrectly. Yeah. They both felt personally responsible for it, even yeah. though they had nothing to do with it. But, uh, but um, they, you know, Roy handled everything. Roy handled all the details. Yeah. And, um, you know, they never spoke about it again. I mean, they were very stoic, yeah. you know, about it. The only time people really saw Roy, though, moved was the death of Walt. Yeah. Yeah. And that that he never he never appeared to recover yeah. from that. Uh, it's all it again. It's it's all just fascinating. I mean, it has all of this just adds a new layer onto the entire story. I mean, you in your closing, you know, you you kind of do your spin on it. All started. It was all started by a mouse, but in our case, it's all started by a man, Walt Disney. But also along with that. It, it, there needs to be that added element in there. And his that, brother Roy. And it's still, yeah, and his brother Roy. Or, and it was maintained by Roy. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's just, it, it, it's all great. Yeah. So I hope everyone out there 
learned as much as I did just from yeah. I all mean, these yeah, things. Roy was a fascinating man. Lived a very simple life, even though you know when when the studio became more successful, you know, Walt and Lillian moved to Holmby Hills, which yeah. is a little more Tony, and uh, and um, Roy and Edna continued to live in the San Fernando Valley. Never changed their lifestyle. When they did the when Roy instituted the austerity sort of program at the studio Mm -hmm. as a result of the war, uh, he even felt uh, he sold one of his cars because he felt he had to live it, you know, as the employees were living it. They didn't buy a second car again really until the grandchildren came along. Uh, He's a, I mean, he's an extremely admirable person. Mm -hmm. He was. uh, And that's what people liked about him. And, And he had that Midwestern honesty, Midwestern directness, which people mistook. Yeah. Uh, in business, uh, because he would, and he would play up on it. He would, in, in negotiations and business dealings, he sometimes, I mean, he would size up people very quickly. And he would sometimes come off as sort of the simple Midwesterner. Yeah. And they would fall into that and treat him that way. And then he came in, that businessman in him came roaring in. Yeah. And he got the deals that he wanted as a result. So if he would have shared more of the limelight with Walt, do you think, uh, do you think he actually would have been more popular as a figure just based on his personality and the way people responded with him? I suppose, yeah. I, I mean, I suppose if it was still the Disney Brothers yeah. studio. And, but... Um, that just wasn't. Roy yeah. didn't like the limelight yeah. at all. In fact, uh, when we get into the Magic Kingdom and the opening day, Roy wasn't even present yeah. for the opening day of the Magic Kingdom. He was on property, but he was um, not in the Magic Kingdom mm-hmm. and on on its official opening day. And somebody asked him why, and he said, "Because this is Walt's day." Yeah. So. Huh. Anyway, yeah, so, so just a remarkable, a remarkable man. Absolutely. So I'm glad we could, could tell a little more about him. Exactly, you know. I'm excited to Walt. do more. Yeah. yeah. So now many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, um, including Building a Company, Roy O. Disney, and the Creation of an Entertainment Empire by Bob Thomas. And that is really the only book written about um, Roy Disney. When you think of all the ones written about Walt. Yeah, well. This is it. That's the book I'm going for then. But if you want to know more about some of the topics we covered on today's show, you might want to listen to these past episodes from the archives of the Diz Unplugged Disney podcast. Um, To learn more about the days of Walt and Roy's Hyperion Studio, you'll find my conversation with Disney author and historian David Lesjak on Walt Disney's Hyperion Studio, 1925 to 1939, Foundation of an Empire, on the Diz Unplugged Disneyland podcast for May 9th, 2013, along with my accompanying article that's in the Diz Archives on July 28th, 2013. If you're interested in how Disney led the way for merchandising their characters and films, um, on the March 29th, 2015 episode of the Diz Unplugged Disney podcast, Disneyland podcast, I talk about the pioneering efforts of Kay Kamen that helped make Mickey Mouse and Friends merchandise superstars. So, Craig, until our next episode, where can our listeners hear your golden vocal tones? See, I changed it up. <laughs> oh, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, of course, you can find me on all of the uh, Diz Unplugged uh, shows that happen. Well, I guess with the exception of the uh, the new Dreams Unlimited Travel show. 
I, I'm slightly featured on that, that that much, but uh, and then in general with social media, uh, follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Teleclaster. I actually do respond to people on there, so it's it's worth giving me the follows. But yeah, what about you? Well, you can find me every Sunday night on the Disney Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition, with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulatto-Willie, and Tony Spatel. We have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all, and all Southern California theme parks and the Walt Disney Family Museum. You can listen to us live on Mixler Sundays at our new time, 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland time. And you can download our two weekly shows from iTunes on each Monday. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes. And Craig, where can our listeners find these shows and more? You can find them all at disunplug.com, of course. And adding on to uh, the where you can find the Disunplugged Disneyland edition, it will now be available on uh, YouTube for those oh. out there. It started uh, with the start of the year. Mm-hmm. Wanted to start on a fresh start, but you'll find it on the Disunplugged YouTube channel. Uh, so uh, it's really helpful for those out there that have uh, that are hard of hearing that they can actually read the words on the screen too, so they can finally uh, enjoy your episodes uh, if they weren't able to really get as much out of it from listening before. So. Uh, yeah, you can find, of course, any videos that we put out there on YouTube, and uh, all of that is centrally located then in disunplugged.com. Excellent. Good. And you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. And on Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. So come on and follow me. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother, Roy. Roy.